Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic when lots of us, including me, were using Zoom to visit with family that we couldn't be with any other way? Those online reunions have given way to face-to-face gatherings for many now. But there's one group of siblings that's still getting together once a month on their laptops and phones. And they're doing something a bit unusual in the name of confronting climate change. It's a simple solution, but a heartfelt one. We'll also be talking about the right to be cool. And I'm not talking about being hip or fashionable. I'm talking about being able to survive extreme heat. And one way to do that is with a government tool that's neither cool nor sexy at all. Building codes. Also, hear the case from two historians who argue social science is the best, most underappreciated way to figure out how to move those in power to make real change on emissions. And we're hearing from listeners who are following their own paths to making a difference, from a single mom in rural Ontario to a PhD candidate in Toronto. Lots to think about, lots to smile about today. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. One of the things I love most about this show is when we hear from listeners like you, and you'd be surprised how often it happens. Every week, we hear from people coast to coast to coast who are working on different kinds of climate action in their own lives. This week, Diane Serqua joins me. She wrote in recently to tell us about her family Zoom calls. Hi, Diane. Hi. Now, I understand you just got off a Zoom. What did you talk about today? Well, today we were, this would be our third Zoom talking about climate change. Usually it's just my siblings, but this uh, month a cousin asked if he could join and he said that he would bring a topic for us to discuss. So it was called the downside of EVs. Oh, interesting. Okay. (laughs) So what conclusion did you come to, if any? Well, you know what? It, It was really interesting because every time when we have our Zoom, Uh, One person takes responsibility for sending out a resource for everybody else to check out. And then we discuss it at the uh, first 20 minutes or so of our Zoom. And uh, so I had gotten this uh, email from him with what he was, uh, it was actually from a a car magazine. And, um, but it was written in December of 2019. And it had a whole bunch of points of 20 points of uh, things that were, um, uh, downsides of this fellow thought of EVs. And, uh, but as we went through it, we realized that so many of the things that he was seeing as going to be a negative for the future, um, those things had usually quite often been solved, even in this short time since 2019. And it was very surprising to us all as we went through them and discussed it. And um, so anyway, huh. it was... Interesting. Uh, great, yeah. that, 
great that he and he told us, he says, you know, I sent this just to see, you know, give stir everybody up and <laughs> see what they'd say. And um, so anyway, uh, but it was, uh, it really wasn't any conflict about it at all. We sort of, as we went through the different points, we all agreed so much on, on everything. Okay, Diane. Let, so now let's just back it up a little bit. This is clear to everybody now, the listeners, you have family Zooms about climate change. How did that come about? Well, <clears throat> my brother Ross and his wife, uh, they've been concerned about climate change for some time ahead of the rest of us. They bought a Toyota Prius in 2008 and they have solar panels on their roof to feed uh, power back into the grid. And, uh, and my brother has also taken a climate reality course on climate change so that he could do presentations on Zoom for people and family that are interested. So he called us in, um, I guess it was January of last year, and said, well, how about with all this COVID, let's, let's get together on Zoom once a month. And so we started doing that, and we all really enjoyed it so much. And then about uh, three and a half months ago, he suggested, you know, why don't we try something on climate change, sort of like a book club, but it'd be a climate change club. And we would each make uh, choose something as a resource uh, for each, uh, each month's meeting. That person would be responsible for sending it out to everybody ahead of time. And then we would discuss it for 20 minutes at the start of our Zoom. And so that's what we've been doing. And it's been made us all much more aware and looking for information than we ever had before. I love this idea of a book club for climate change. You told us you talked about uh, EVs on the last call. What other topics have you tackled? Uh, the first one was on cars, uh, uh, chargers, chargers for electric vehicles is what I'm trying to say. My one brother had another brother. He had uh, done some research on that and sent it out to us. And then the next one I sent out, it was climate emergency feedback loops. I'm, I'm wondering, too, uh, you're talking to each other. So this is a nice, safe space, obviously, for family. But have the Zoom calls helped you talk about climate change with other people? Yes. I didn't have the courage before to really talk to other people about it um, because I didn't feel like I had enough knowledge. And, uh, and I still need a lot more knowledge. But the things that I have learned from our discussions uh, have given me the courage to say to other people, you know, I'm learning about climate change. If I get something that I figure is a good resource, would you like me to send it out to you? And I, I've had a number of people say yes. Now, who, who are these people that you're talking to? Well, a next door neighbor. <laughs> um, she, uh, um, she doesn't live uh, next door all the time. But uh, when I was talking to her, she said, yes, she'd like me to send it out. And there's other family and friends that uh, I'm sending things to um, just because they're interested as well. But you're not going up to strangers on the street yet. No. <laughs> Maybe that's next. <laughs> why, why is this so important to you? Well, I have six grandchildren and uh, I grew up in a time where I just felt we were so safe in the world and uh, things just seemed to be getting better and better and better. And to think that my grandchildren are, could have a, a very sad future if we're not careful and get working on this uh, really concerns me. 
So it was your brother, as you said, who started the calls, and and he's taken this other action. He's offering money to all of his nieces and his nephews? He is. He's offering money to um, each one of his nieces and nephews to use the... the, He has a a list of things that they can do. Uh, One could be buying, purchasing an electric vehicle. It could be putting insulation to better insulate their house. Um, It could be... um, uh, putting solar panels or a uh, heat pump. Um, it, there's a number of things that he figures would be a big help to the environment as well as to his nieces and nephews. And he would like to uh, help them to be able to afford to do something that they feel would be good for them to try and help themselves and the planet. And have many of them take, taken him up on his offer? Um, one has, well, I don't know about all his nieces and nephews, um, but I do know that one of my sons has taken him up on um, and uh, done insulation in his home. And another one is considering what he wants to use, another son of mine. And uh, I know they're all thinking about it. And he's told them there's no timeline. You can think about it and come up with something that's good for you. And for our own kids, we're also uh, putting a sum of money forward if they take his offer, then we will also add financial help um, to whatever project they've chosen. And you are setting a really high bar for all of the other parents and uncles and aunts (laughs) in the country. (laughs) That's that's very generous. You know what? I think we... um, we've If we've been blessed to have the life we've had, if we can help out, uh, that's what I think we should do. My brother's given me that example, and we're trying to follow it. Well, Diane, who knows? Maybe you've inspired a bunch of other people to start doing the same thing within their families. So I, I really thank you for speaking to me today. It's been great. Well, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Now, if you want to get in touch like Diane Serqua did, please do. Our email address is earth at cbc.ca. Or you can drop us a note on Twitter at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch CBC. Our DMs are open. And I also just wanted to tell you that a little later in the program, we're going to be talking to another listener who went on her own EV journey. The Ontario Green Party called for changes to building codes a few days ago in order to deal with the kind of extreme heat that baked Western Canada almost a year ago. 619 people died because of the heat. Most of them were alone in homes that had no fans and no air conditioning. The BC Coroner's Service reviewed the circumstances around each death in the hope of learning what happened and what can be done to prevent such a devastating loss of life in the future. Amongst the recommendations, a simple idea. Improve building codes to protect people from extreme heat. Is the kind of climate solution so mundane you might just skip over it? But my next guest says it's time governments across Canada take that one step further and uphold people's right to be cool. Brendan Haley is the Policy Director at Efficiency Canada. Brendan, hello. Hello. Now, we'll get to that right to be cool in a moment. But first, let's start with the humble building code. How can it help people cope with extreme heat? 
Well, um, a lot of the solutions that help us save energy, which has been a big focus on building codes, also keep us comfortable. They keep us comfortable in, in our indoor temperatures um, because upgrades to things like insulation and air sealing keep that cold air in your home for, for longer. And so those are what we call passive solutions, which is a big focus on building codes. And, and they will work even in the event of, say, a power outage uh, and without having to run an, an air conditioner. Um, so ideally, we have those really energy efficient building envelopes that are then ready to use a, a reasonable amount of of air conditioning. And, and we're talking about extreme heat, but the, the efficiency also helps with cold winter months as well. Indeed. Um, you know, there's a really interesting intersection when we talk about climate and energy efficiency and deploying air conditioners. Um, and that's because what we call heat pumps are air conditioners that work in reverse by taking heat from the air and, and putting it into your home. So this is a very energy efficient and low carbon way to heat a building. So if we're strategic about helping people access air conditioning in the summer, we can also deliver a very energy efficient climate solution for, for heating in the winter at the same time. Now, the BC Corner recommended that new buildings be required to include both passive and active cooling systems. What, what would that look like? Is it a mix of things? Um, yeah, I think, you know, the Corner report um, was very focused on the existing building code plans and, and frameworks and how to improve them. In the process, I think they also identified some some big gaps in how the current framework is, isn't um, fully going to capture all the buildings in need. Um, so our building codes, you know, they typically only create rules for, for new buildings traditionally. So of course, every new building should be highly energy efficient and have air conditioning. Um, and when we look at a building's ability to maintain those cool temperatures, you know, even in the event of a power outage, that's when we really get to understand the, the benefit of very high energy efficiency performance. A lot of our building codes are now moving towards zero emission building codes, and that will help us encourage air conditioning because it'll also encourage us to install heat pumps as a low carbon heating alternative. But if we only focus on the new buildings, we're, we're leaving out all the existing buildings where most people live. Um, so in Canada and in BC right now, they're currently developing what's called a retrofit code, and that will create a standard for existing buildings. Um, but it's only going to be triggered when a building undergoes a scheduled non-energy upgrade. So that still leaves out all those buildings that are not planning to do upgrades in the future. And that's a real concern because we could see this underclass of underperforming buildings out there. And those are the buildings I think least likely, like, with the least amount of upkeep, right? And they're likely to be the least prepared to withstand extreme heat events. So is that what you're talking about then when you're talking about that right to be cool? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we need to think about the performance of our buildings and if they are providing that that right to be cool, right, through high energy efficiency. So a, a policy solution here, when we think about building codes and standards, is what's called a, a building performance standard. And that starts with tracking the actual 
energy performance of buildings and establishing minimum standards for energy efficiency emissions. And it can also include safety standards like indoor comfort levels or that that right to be to be cool. And such a policy is much more performance based, it's more data driven, and it would ensure we start upgrading those worst performing buildings first and are more likely to capture the buildings that are most vulnerable to extreme heat. Now, we talked about homeowners, we talked about individual buildings, but does this need to be done on a bigger scale, entire neighborhoods maybe? Yeah, I think this issue of extreme heat really encourages us to think about energy retrofits differently and and what we really need to do to um, to get to, to net zero. Um, so yes, one of those opportunities is to think about upgrading entire neighborhoods at once instead of taking this building by building approach. And that's because heat islands are concentrated often in particular areas. So if we upgrade all the buildings in the same area in a more coordinated fashion, we could get more economies of scale. We could make those retrofits perhaps lower cost and and faster. Um, but we can also think beyond the walls of those buildings and towards solutions like, say, planting trees, um, which increases shading so those air conditioners don't have to run on, on high as much. Um, so thinking about retrofitting large sections of our building stock in this more coordinated way um, instead of each building individually is where we need to go to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions quite rapidly, um, but also helps us get to those most vulnerable neighborhoods uh, so that they're ready for the next extreme heat event. Is there anywhere in the world that you're seeing that kind of progress on large-scale retrofits? In the model of, of really thinking about these large-scale retrofits, entire neighborhoods at once was, was pioneered in the Netherlands by something called energy sprong, which means energy energy leap. Um, and yeah, that's that's really the example that a lot of other jurisdictions are, are looking to follow now. And then in European jurisdictions, we also see these um, mandatory uh, performance standards for, for existing buildings. And a lot of those performance standards are around energy efficiency, but they're also around um, you know, health and safety considerations, which could include things like access to cooling. So aside from um, saving lives and aside from assuring people's right to be cool in, in the future, in a future where we could make all these buildings more efficient, what impact would that have on Canada's emissions reductions? Well, our, our buildings are roughly 18% of, of, of total emissions. Um, you know, the, I think the other thing to think about our buildings is, is we actually have a lot of electricity waste in those buildings, so to speak. So even freeing up some of the um, clean electricity we have. I think, you know, what's really interesting about um, thinking about providing access to air conditioning, which does increase electricity demand a little bit, is we need to be able to do that strategically so that we get higher energy savings overall and much higher greenhouse gas emission savings overall. And again, we can, we can do that um, by coupling our air conditioning with also installing heat pumps because a heat pump is simply an air conditioner uh, that, that works in, re in reverse. Um, so I think there is an, an interesting opportunity here to both 
provide this right to be cool, but also overall um, really also contribute to uh, a climate solution that reduces um, overall energy demand and emissions. Brendan Haley, thank you for your time. Thank you. Okay, now we have an update from a guest we first spoke to in our first season. Tara Stanton got in touch with us a few days ago. We first talked to her in October of 2020, when she wasn't certain about whether she should try to drive an electric vehicle in and around Wyerton, Ontario. There's a couple of different factors why. Um, One is because the technology is relatively new. Range hasn't really been something that I've been able to manage just because of the amount of driving that I do. So the the further I have to drive, um, the less range I would have in a fully electric vehicle. And the other really big issue has been cost. It's just been too expensive for me as a single parent to be able to afford to buy an EV. So that was Tara Stanton back then. And Tara Stanton joins me now. Hello. Hi. Hi. So what has happened? So um, after that interview in, uh, in June of 2021, I, uh, I finally decided to take the plunge and I went ahead and purchased uh, my own electric vehicle. I bought a Kia Nero Sport EV. Were there any rebates available to you too that helped? Yeah, there's a federal rebate that was about $5,000 that sort of brought the price down a little bit more as well. The other thing you mentioned when we talked to you last time was that the, the, the other factor you were worried about was the range. How are you finding that? It hasn't been a problem. When I first bought the car, I didn't have a, a level two charger here at home. And so I was depending on a level one charger, which is, they call it a drip charger. So it's just, a, it's a plug that just plugs into your regular 120 volts outdoor plug and it was quite slow it would take somewhere between well (laughs) one day i I drove the car right down to as low as i could possibly get it and i came to plug it in and it told me it was going to take three days to charge it (laughs) so it was pretty slow um but uh but since i put the level two charger in i can plug it in at night it's ready to go in the morning i haven't had to worry about where i'm going hardly at all i've been able to drive to waterloo and back on one charge um, I did a lot of trips from from Sable Beach with my where my parents are up to Tobermory over the summer, which is about 100 kilometers one way. And so there and back, no problems at all with 200 kilometers of range was pretty easy to do. So, so yeah, no, I've never been in a situation where I was really worried about whether or not I was going to get to my destination at all. Well, that that's interesting because the other thing you were worried about was cold weather reducing the distance you could drive on one charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there is a bit of a difference between the winter and the summer. It drops my range by about 100 kilometers approximately. So if I get 450 kilometers on a full charge now, um, back in December, January, it was only about 350 kilometers. And so that just meant that I had to plug the car in more often when I was at home at night. But, uh, but it really hasn't made that much of a difference to me at all. But you've also discovered other charging stations, including a free one? 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the county of Bruce, God love them. They decided that they were going to put in some free chargers. And I think probably with, with the support of some other businesses and organizations in the area, such as Bruce Power, put some free charging stations in at some of their main buildings. So there's a, a Bruce County administration building in Wyerton, and it's free to go and charge there. I think it's fantastic. There's another one in Southampton, and there's another one up in Lion's Head, and there's another one in Tobermory. And so they're just, they're popping up all over the place, which I think is fantastic. So, so far you, you've been driving, as we said, back and forth to work, to Waterloo for work, right? Mm -hmm. And to your parents? Uh, Lines head to work. Sorry, so far. Okay. So far you're driving back and forth to work and to your parents. So not normally more than about 120 kilometers a day. That's right. But (laughs) you are planning something much more ambitious. So tell me about that. That's right. My daughter and I are going to drive to Nova Scotia this summer. We're going to head out just after school's finished and, and uh, take a couple of days to drive out to visit some friends out in uh, Halifax and in Hubbard, Nova Scotia. And then we're going to work our way back home again as well. So I'm excited to see how the car does on a longer trip like that. And I certainly plotted the whole route out in terms of where we can stop to charge and what are some of the sort of sightseeing things that we can do while we're there, because we are going to have to stop for a you know, for an hour or two hours or something like that. It's not going to be, it's not going to be a, a quick stopover as it would be if I was just pumping gas in the car. So we'll just take advantage of it and make it a sightseeing trip and, and enjoy the view while we're there. You have got solar panels on your roof. You've got an electric car. You shop locally. But mm-hmm. there's one other thing that is about to change. That's right. In a couple of weeks, they're going to come and install an air source heat pump in my house and take out my old oil furnace. (laughs) And what do you think? How, How are you managing that too? Because you're taking on a lot of expense here. It's yeah, it's going to be expensive. We um, I applied for a green energy grant. Um, they had the, the federal federal government is offering the incentives for people to energize their homes with green energy and with with um, you know making some upgrades and stuff like that to make your home more energy efficient. And so I applied for one of those green energy grants, and that's going to cover it's probably about half the cost of the of the air source heat pump. And then I also have to upgrade my electrical panel at the same time. So there's a bit of expense, but I think in the long run it'll be worth it in terms of the reduction in my carbon footprint here at home. Tara, I wonder what you would say to other people who are thinking about these kinds of things that you've done, but are maybe hesitant for reasons of cost or or for other factors that they may worry about. Uh, I think it's important to do your homework. I think it's really important to look for those opportunities like that green energy audit, the, the green energy grants that are available to look for the 0% financing. I just had a conversation the other day with a woman who was worried about range on her car and worried about, you know, when she travels and parks her car at the parking lot in the airport, does the battery die while she's parked, those kinds of things. And so I think you just need to keep asking those questions and keep looking for those answers and 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 really take a hard look at what the what's going to be the payoff. I know it's expensive, but what's going to be the, the the long run sort of support that you're going to get in terms of what you can contribute to climate change or not contribute to climate change? Well, bon voyage, Tara, on the trip and let us know how, how it goes. And, and uh, when you get the heat pump in, we're, we're interested in following along on the journey. Okay. Of course. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Tara. Thanks, Laura. Bye. Bye. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better 
cotton or polyester, tea or coffee. For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You are listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. If you like what you're hearing on the show, please do subscribe to our podcast. You can hear the latest programs and you can dig into our archive. And if you're craving more coverage on the climate crisis, you should check out CBC's new climate page. Our shows are there too. You can also catch up on the What on Earth newsletter and read up on all the climate reporting by my colleagues across the country. That's at cbc.ca slash news slash climate. Scientists have been warning about climate change for decades, and some are tired of calling for change and being ignored. In March, we heard from New Zealand Professor Bruce Glavovich on the program. He and two colleagues published a paper calling for a moratorium on climate science, and especially on the United Nations assessment reports. Scientists are mothers, fathers, citizens, community members, and so we do our work as human beings seeking to make a difference. And so our effort with this paper is primarily aimed at the climate change science community with the endeavor and hope that we would call for and mobilize a pause to have some introspection and reflection on what our role is. And in particular, we do not believe that yet another seventh assessment is an appropriate course of action. Now a new paper is arguing there's no need for a pause, but the two authors say a specific kind of scientific research, often overlooked and underappreciated, is what's needed now. Victoria Colonia is a visiting postdoctoral fellow at the Department of the History of Science at Harvard University. Naomi Oreskes is a professor in the same department. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Victoria, we'll start with you. What kind of scientific research into climate change do you think is most important or most needed at this point? So we've argued that given that the main challenges to action on climate change are economic, social and political, we actually argue that what we need is more social science and humanities research that can help us overcome these barriers that we're facing at the moment. So this could be political science looking at what kind of policies um, should be implemented. This could be psychological science looking at how we can spark individual and collective action on climate change. This could be sociological work. So what we're really calling for is a more interdisciplinary approach and more social science research that can kind of work together to investigate what different barriers are to action on climate change and how we can overcome them. All right, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But Naomi, I just wanted to ask you first, Bruce Glavovich and his colleagues say social science research hasn't been effective in bringing about change. I'm wondering what your response is to that. Well, my response is, first of all, to say that I agree with the overall premise of their argument. So I totally agree that we don't need a seventh 
assessment report of the IPCC, or at least not the working group one physical science. The physical science basis for understanding the climate crisis is clear and scientists have communicated it clearly and we know what we need to know, but we've been unable to act on that knowledge. And, and my work over the last almost 20 years now and the work I'm doing now with Victoria is about trying to better understand why it has been so hard to get meaningful action on climate change. And we think that um, Professor Glavovich and his colleagues have been a little bit too quick to dismiss the significance of social science research. And when they say, well, it hasn't been effective, that's not really a fair conclusion because there has been almost no money put into social science research. Something like 98% of all the money that is spent on climate research is on the physical science side. I like to sometimes say that my work is not even a rounding error on the cost of a climate satellite. <laughs> so we haven't really done the social science research that could help us solve this problem. Well, why are you being treated like, like the, the cheap date, the partner who doesn't get the cash in this relationship? Well, that's, there's a long historical story there, but I think the short answer is that after World War II, the physical sciences took on a position of cultural authority and influence based largely on the contributions that they had made in building things like the atomic bomb, radar, depth charges that helped the Allies win World War II. And so physical scientists came out of World War II in an extremely strong cultural position, and they used that position to build an extremely large and effective scientific infrastructure. But they did the work to help us understand the climate crisis, but not to help us understand how to fix it. Victoria, can you give us some specific examples of how social science research has brought about change? Sure. So um, I'll start, I guess, with my own field, which is environmental psychology. So over the past decades, we've gained increasing understanding of how we can spark individual and collective action on climate change. We've better understood how to communicate about the climate crisis. We've seen what kind of narratives work better than others. Um, we've also gained understanding of the different um, climate policies um, that could help us address this crisis. We've gained insights into how strongly the public supports different political actions on climate change. Um, so I feel like there is definitely major contributions that have been brought upon by social scientists. But as Naomi just said, social scientists continue to be underfunded. And this has kind of stalled the overall um, yes, contributions that social scientists could have made in this time. And how do you measure the, the change, the, the successes that you see? One really concrete thing that social science research has helped with is around the globe today, there is very significant litigation taking place against the fossil fuel industry. And there have been some very significant legal decisions, particularly in the Philippines and in the Netherlands, uh, against the fossil fuel industry. That research is very strongly informed by the social science research that has documented what these companies have done and how they have done it. If I can give another example, some years ago, I was at a conference where two very famous climate scientists, physical scientists, were having a giant argument about whether it was better to try to address fossil fuel use through a tax on carbon, so a carbon tax, versus what's known as an emission trading system, which is a more complicated means of trying to achieve the same thing, discouraging people from using it. And they were having this giant fight, and, and, they, and they were making very big claims about which one was better. 
And one of the scientists even said to the other, well, your proposal doesn't work. And that was just untrue. And so I raised my hand and said, well, if I may, we actually have evidence on this question. Social scientists have studied this. And what we know is that both systems can work under the right circumstances. So social science can help frame, can provide information about what kinds of strategies can be effective and prevent scientists from having arguments that they really don't need to have. Naomi, I'm curious as to how your intervention was received by the two arguing scientists. Um, Well, there was a bit of a stunned silence. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I see. All right. Um, Naomi, the other thing I just wanted to touch on with you is, is the last time you were on the program, we were talking about uh, the way fossil fuel companies can communicate, and uh, particularly ExxonMobil, which has used language to downplay the fossil fuel industry's role in climate change and shift responsibility on individuals. What impact do you think that research has had? Well, we know for a fact that it's helped inform litigation. So here in Massachusetts, where I live, the Attorney General has filed suit, a consumer fraud suit against the fossil fuel industry for their um, advertisements, which they would say are misleading and have been misleading for a long time. And I think it's also helped consumers to understand that we've been fed a diet of disinformation on this issue. And so that helps us to make more informed decisions. You know, one of the things I always like to talk about, you know, we live in a capitalist society um, and Adam Smith is often thought of as the father of modern capitalism. And one of the things he said is that for market systems to work, people have to have good information about what they're buying and selling. But if people are receiving a steady stream of disinformation, then they can't make good decisions. So we can argue all we want about whether capitalism is good or bad, but the reality is that even if we think capitalism is good, it cannot work effectively if consumers are bombarded with disinformation. Uh, Victoria, the two of you have also done research into into just what role the public wants scientists to play when it comes to climate change. What did you find? So by asking the public in Germany and the U.S. about what they thought the role of scientists in society and policymaking should be, we found that the public actually wishes scientists to be active in policymaking, so to play an active role in talking to policymakers, informing them about the scientific evidence that is available. And we found that the public in general wishes for scientists to be more engaged. Okay. So if that's what the public wants, um, and you also say that science doesn't have the power to compel political action, (laughs) what's going to work? Well, I think the point here of Victoria's work, most scientists think that they should not become involved in policymaking uh, and that they should specifically not become involved in politics. And one of the reasons that they feel that way is that they fear that if they do, they will lose credibility with the public, that the public will think that they're biased or not objective. And the brilliance of Victoria's work is that she shows scientists that that's actually not true, that scientists are making a lot of assumptions about how the public feels about their role that are not supported by evidence. So in fact, scientists are being quite unscientific about their own role. And so if we take Victoria's work seriously and embrace it, we can say to scientists, look, people want you to be involved. People want you to take this on. You've done all this great work. Now take the next step to help us figure out what to do about it. And it doesn't mean that scientists necessarily should be getting involved in the nitty gritty of policy decisions. That might be outside their expertise, 
but the public want them to be engaged. And I've seen this myself anecdotally where, you know, scientists will give this big speech and then someone in the audience will stand up and say, okay, well, what do we do about it? And the public are desperate for scientists to say, now take the next step. And the scientists say, oh, no, no, I can't tell you what to do. <laughs> and the audience is left feeling just flummoxed. Right. Um, I also wonder what you may have been hearing from scientists who are in a less privileged position within the scientific community who, who may feel that, that even the, the, the pure science or the physical science research needs to continue because in their parts of the world, the answers aren't all there yet. Yeah, I think it's important to state that we do not argue at all that natural science and climate change isn't important or relevant. Um, we do believe that climate scientists have done a very effective job so far at producing knowledge that can serve as a basis for policymaking. And we do believe that more knowledge is needed, especially when it comes to local impacts of climate change. Um, what we are arguing instead is that we also need more social science research. One of the problems with the call for a blanket moratorium on climate science research is that, in fact, there are people um, in the global south and poor countries who are doing work that's incredibly important for their communities. And we would never want to say that those people should not continue doing work that, that they know is helpful and meaningful in their communities. But there is this question, and here's where this is where we agree with Professor Glavovich and his colleagues, that... The question is about what kind of work are we doing and why are we continuing to do more work of a certain type that seems to have reached a kind of, um, I don't want to say dead end, that feels a little too strong, but it's kind of, um, it sort of fulfilled its premise or its promise. Climate scientists, physical scientists were asked to answer a question. And that question is, what is the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that will cause dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. Those are the words of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Well, climate scientists, physical scientists have answered that question. And the answer is 1.5 degrees C, right? That's where we get that 1.5 degree report that the IPCC wrote recently. So they have answered the question that they were posed. And that's great. And they deserve a huge amount of credit for being able to do that. And now we need to move on to a different set of questions. Naomi, Bruce Glavovich told us that he and his colleagues were trying to start a conversation about the role of scientists. How successful do you think they were? Well, I think they have been. The yeah. fact that we're sitting here today with you, I think, <laughs> is to their credit. And, and I think Victor and I really hope that our response you know, reflects that view, that we think it's great that they wrote this paper. We think it's great that they are asking scientists to have a really serious question discussion about what is a, you know, an absolutely existential issue, both for scientists themselves in terms of understanding what is the role of science in the modern world, and for all of us, because if we don't act on what we know from climate science, we're looking at a world of hurt. I completely agree. And um, I am very, I mean, the first time I read the Glavovich uh, article, um, I was very, very glad that they actually raised this topic. And I think it's very important for us scientists working on climate change really ask ourselves, well, what is our role? What is our responsibility? And how do we act on this political inaction on climate change that we're seeing? So where would both of you like to see this conversation go next? Well, so as a historian of science, I'm very mindful about how our assumptions about science have been culturally developed and formulated. And I think that 
you know, we, when I say we, I mean people of my generation, and I started my career as a scientist, the post-World War II generation, the Sputnik generation, the atomic bomb generation, we were raised to think that natural science, physical science was the answer. That if we would answer these questions, if we would figure out how the world worked, we would then give this information to policy makers and they would act upon it. And, and Professor Glavich says this in his paper as well. It's what I call the supply side model of science. We just had to supply the information and we could trust policymakers and business leaders to use that information to solve problems. What we've now learned in the last 20 or 30 years is that that model does not work. And it doesn't work because the action is blocked by vested political and economic interests. And so unless we address seriously that blockage, we will not be able to solve these problems and science will not be able to fulfill its promise. And so we need to rethink our whole model of what we think the role of physical science is. is. So that's asking a lot, but that's my aspiration. And again, that's why I'm glad uh, that this question has been raised and that we're having this conversation. And it doesn't mean that we don't respect physical science. It doesn't mean that we don't love science. I do love science. My whole life, my whole career has been dedicated to either doing or understanding science. But it means rethinking what we think the role and the power of natural science is in our world. Victoria? Yes, if I may add to that, I think it's also very important to think more. And something that I want to do more in my research is think more about the science policy interface. So what is really the role of scientists at the science policy interface? What is the role of the IPCC? And what should the role of the IPCC and of scientists be in the future? Do we perhaps need to change the structure of the IPCC? Do we need to set different focuses within the IPCC work? So the Glavovich article has definitely um, inspired me to think more about the science policy interface. Well, and I if I could jump in, there's one more thing I think also we want to talk about which is the question is, who are we serving? So I don't fault the IPCC for most of what they've done because they were set up under a particular political framework under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and asked, well, actually that's not entirely right. The IPCC predates the UN Framework Convention, but the work that they've been doing uh, in relation to the COP structure, you know, the COP meetings uh, is really sort of structured by the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that's not something that scientists can necessarily change. But I think there is a question of who are we actually serving? Because I think many scientists of my generation were raised to believe that if we did pure science, that would serve society. And we didn't actually have to ask a lot of hard questions about the way science serves society, because it was taken for granted that just by doing science alone, that would serve society. And now again, I think we're seeing it's a lot more complicated than that. And we need to look at it more closely and maybe rethink some of our assumptions and maybe even rethink some of our priorities, how we decide what kind of science is important to do. And that's where the natural social science question comes up. Social sciences are really essential to try to solve some of these crucial issues. And natural scientists are used to, they're kind of used to having the limelight and the stage and I don't blame them for not wanting to give them up, that up. But I think they need to be a little more cooperative and share the limelight a little bit. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I'm looking forward to the next phase of the conversation, and I'm really hoping I can listen into it. Thanks to both of you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
So I found that conversation fascinating on so many levels for for the fact that scientists among themselves are trying to figure out what their role should be in the current, for want of a better word, climate. And I also wonder how that conversation is being carried out among Canadian scientists. I know that there are scientists, both physical and social, who either work in the Federal Department of Climate Change or have done work for them through contracts. So if any of you out there want to give us an insight into what you've been talking about, you know how to reach us, earth at cbc.ca, or you can tweet us at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch CBC. Speaking of reaching out to us, that's what Milan Ilnitsky did just a few weeks ago. And he says climate change has shaped his life since he was a child. I was born at Grace Hospital in Vancouver in 1983. How concerned is Ilnitsky about climate change? Well, he's got carbon dioxide levels on the tip of his tongue. That was when the atmospheric CO2 concentration was about 342 parts per million. But now it's risen by another 80 during my lifetime, with impacts that won't be fully felt for decades. Ilnitsky has been involved in environmental activism since he was 12 years old, when he sailed through BC's Gulf Islands on a tall ship as part of a youth environmental conference. After high school, he studied environmental politics at UBC. Then it was off to Oxford to study environmental policy. That was when he learned more about climate change, and he realized he had to devote himself to the cause. In 2007, he was offered a job with the federal government, and he accepted hoping to help Canada move towards solving climate change. I have great respect for the expertise and dedication of civil servants working on climate change and that the role of government is indispensable for avoiding catastrophe. Climate change is a problem of coordination and only governments can drive change that is systematic and rapid enough. But frustration followed. His work as a policy analyst wasn't having the impact he'd hoped for. I would say that I was surprised when I arrived by how in a sense, introductory what we were writing was. You know, we were writing in 2012 what I would have thought would have been widely known to people in 2007 if they were following the issue. And I'd say it became clear over time that between changes of ministers and changes of senior bureaucrats, we were essentially writing the same set of briefings over and over. They were kind of briefings to nowhere. So he took action in his own way. He made presentations to fellow civil servants about the seriousness of climate change. He wrote letters to senior government officials. He was trying to convince his colleagues that continued investment in fossil fuels would be folly. How was his advocacy received? I was taken for a walk by a senior official and essentially counseled that writing the letter or commenting at all in public on climate change policy were what civil servants term career-limiting moves. Now all of this took a toll on him, and Ilnitsky decided it was time to move on. I felt that I needed to be somewhere where I could contribute to society getting serious about climate action. And when the government decided that I had to choose between remaining a civil servant and being able to take part in that conversation, I decided that the ability to take part was more important than the career. He's now a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, and he's writing a dissertation about the campus fossil fuel divestment movement at Canadian universities. And that's actually a movement he's been involved in. 
A few years ago, he spearheaded the campaign for the University of Toronto to divest from fossil fuels. The campaign initially failed, but last fall, U of T's president announced that the university will divest by the end of 2030. The news came as a happy surprise for Ilnitsky. I mean, I'm, I'm enormously grateful for the progressive climate movement and the people in it. That whole notion that the long-term welfare and safety of the university's own students depends on effective climate action, I think, was the reason why they feared that there would be bad public relations consequences to, to fundraising without divesting. So in a sense, we introduced the ideas that over time were persuasive. So what's next? He thinks he'll be more effective as an activist than an academic. And he hopes to break down some roadblocks on the path to climate action. What I'm hoping to do after the PhD is to work on this process of broadening the constituency calling for strong action on climate change. And the concept is to appeal to citizens outside just the progressive left by showing how protecting climate stability is consistent with their values and by offering a positive and aspirational vision for a world after fossil fuels. It's possible to preserve the things we all value while also preserving the stability of the Earth. And we'll be keeping in touch with Milan Ilnitsky to find out how that project goes. How has climate change shaped your life decisions or your career path? You can get in touch with us anytime, earth at cbc.ca, to join the conversation. Greta Thunberg may be the face of youth activism now, but 30 years ago, there was another young woman who commanded international attention with her words and warnings about the planet. You are deciding what kind of a world we are growing up in. Parents should be able to comfort their children by saying, everything's going to be all right. It's not the end of the world, and we're doing the best we can. But I don't think you can say that to us anymore. Are we even on your list of priorities? My dad always says, you are what you do, not what you say. Well, what you do makes me cry at night. You grown-ups say you love us, but I challenge you, please, make your actions reflect your words. Thank you. A then 12-year-old Severn Suzuki, speaking at the Rio Summit in 1992. She is, of course, the daughter of David Suzuki, one of Canada's most prominent science journalists and an activist himself. Next week, both of them will be here to talk about Severn's speech, what's changed and what hasn't, in the campaign to repair an ailing environment. That is it for us this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen and also hear the best of what's on offer from CBC Radio. If you subscribe to our podcast, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. This week's show was produced by me, Laura Lynch, and producer Rachel Sanders. What on Earth includes associate producer Danielle Piper and producer Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wilson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.